Well, good morning. Uh, it's nice to be with you all here this morning. My name is Pastor Jared, and uh, on behalf of uh, Robbie and the band, we are uh, happy to see you here this morning. Uh, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we've been in a series called uh, The Gospel in Action, and we've been looking through uh, the, book of, the book of Acts. And uh, today, we've already, as Robbie already uh, read our passage this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about how the church really does solve another problem, and this was a pretty big problem really was a big problem. It was the, the issue of, of works versus grace when it really came down to it. Obviously, as we read, the, the Pharisees wanted uh, the, the new, new converts to say, hey, look, we've got to follow a certain ritual, a certain plan in order to be saved. But the uh, apostles came in and said, no, it's really about grace. When it comes to the concept of grace, a lot of us get it, but some of us don't really understand it. I know my kids certainly don't understand it. Uh, we were... Um, a little while ago, we, we always get our kids end of the year presents for uh, school for, um, you know, how they did. And it's interesting because along the, along the way, we're saying, you know, hey, you got to do well in school, but we're going to get them a gift anyway. We, we do that as parents, don't we? And it's funny because on the way to Walmart uh, with my kids, I have two little kids, Caden and Langdon, and uh, they like to remind me how good they've been in the car and how bad the other one's been. If you have kids, you know how that works. So we're in the store and... Langdon, my daughter, wanted to remind me, hey, Dad, I just want to remind you when you said uh, buckle your seatbelt, uh, Caden was a little, uh, you know, short on the draw there. Uh, he was a little slow on that one. But I, I was pretty good. I did it. I'm okay. What they don't understand is they're both going to get a gift anyway. But they, they think that their gift, this free gift that they're getting, is really based on some merit that they've done. They don't understand the concept of grace. And a lot of us... In the church, we understand grace, but we don't really understand the concept of grace. We look at this passage this morning. One author wrote, The meaning of life, the wasted years of life, the poor choices of life. God answers the mess of life with one word, grace. We talk as though we understand the term. The bank gives us a grace, period. The CD politician falls from grace. Musicians speak of a grace note. We describe an actress as gracious, a dancer as graceful. We use the words for hospitals, baby girls, kings, and pre-meal prayers. We talk as if we know what grace really means, especially at church. Grace graces the songs we sing and the Bible verses we read. Preachers explain it, hymns proclaim it, and seminaries preach it. But we, do we really understand it? And that's what we're talking about this morning. It's really grace versus works. And that's what we're going to look at as we look at this passage. And I think that we can apply some of these things to our lives this morning. So what I'd like to do as we look at this is dig deep into this, look at the theology behind it, and then apply it to our lives. But before I do, will you pray with me? God, thank you for today, Father. Thank you so much for what you did on the cross for us, Father. Thank you for grace. Thank you that it's not based on anything that we've done or can do. Father, be with us this morning. I pray that you use my lips, speak through me, use my heart. I pray that it's your heart, Father. Be into this room, enter into this room as you have so many times over the years, Father, that you move us, Father, that we can really put this, this gospel in action. Father, thanks again for today. Be with us in your name. Amen. You know, there have been very many times throughout the history uh, of the Christian church where leaders have met together to, get, met together to settle doctrinal issues. Uh, two of the most significant ones are the Council of Nicaea, where we get the Nicene Creed, uh, in 325, and Chalcedon in 451. At those councils, erroneous teachings about God, the nature of the Lord, were really condemned. But here in this passage, the Jerusalem Council is one of the most significant of all of them. Because it really addresses the most fundamental question, what must I do to become saved? 
That's why this passage is so important for us this morning. We see that the, the Jews said, you know what? In order to be saved, it requires circumcision, tradition, following the right rules. It's the apostles who came in and said, no, no, no. That's not what it's about at all. But this was becoming a problem in that church. The influx of Gentiles, you know, it made them nervous. It really did, the Jews in the church, because why? Look, they've been following the rules, they've been following the traditions, and now people are going to come in and they can get saved too? How, how, that's unfair. And what are they going to do? They're going to get rid of all the traditions, all, all the stuff that we know is right and righteous and living holy. And it's funny, because I don't think that's too far off in our churches today. People are coming in and we're going, why is that? How are they here? They can become saved too? I've been living a good life up to now. How can that person just automatically get it? That's grace. So given this, conflict was inevitable. You know, for a while there, there was just a few Gentiles. Now as the church is growing, as we see in Acts, people are coming to the faith. This is becoming a big deal. Things are getting kind of heated. It's coming to a boiling point. The issue was not only how to become saved, but even after you're saved, what, what you must do to, to remain saved. It's all about grace. This is a well-documented story, true story of a seminary professor who was uh, teaching an evangelism class, and every year um, at the end he had an exam that he would pass out. And he was trying to teach the concept of grace. And what he did is he passed out this final exam to all the people in the class. He would say, make sure you read all the way through before you start. At the end of this exam, on the last page was a was a phrase that says, you have a choice. You can either complete this exam as given or sign your name at the bottom and in doing so, receive an A for this assignment. Well, as people started looking through this test, they realized that this test was really hard. The, the questions were becoming harder and harder and next to impossible. Stuff that they didn't even cover in class. And the professor recounts how, you know, it, as it started, there was a lot of groans in there like, oh man, this is going to be impossible. People moaning, complaining. And then all of a sudden he said he, he started hearing some sighs of relief. And people would sign the paper and come in, put it on the desk and walk out. He said others were furious because they were studying so hard. They, they, they tried to know all the right answers, know all the, you know, the, the solutions to all the problems he presented. They studied so hard. They tried to be right. And they got so frustrated that they just turned it in and didn't sign it at all. He said there was one time... Uh, in his period of doing this, that there was one person who read all the way through, got to the last question, and said, you know what, I don't want any free gifts. I want to do this on my own. I studied so hard and so long, I'm going to take the test anyway. Ended up failing the test, where he could have got an A. That's grace. It's grace. So we have a problem here in the church. The problem is that people are saying, hey, look, there's a lot of things you've got to do to be saved. You've got to know all the right things, know the traditions, keep the laws. That's, that's, that's what you need to do to become saved. We see in verse 1, if you have your service sheets there, your Bibles. It says, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Understand, false teachers have plagued the church for years. They continue to do so today, teaching false doctrine. Peter warned us about them in 2 Peter 1. We said, there will be false prophets among you, just as there will be false teachers among you. Paul later warned in Acts 20, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will spare the flock, and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples. That's what was happening here. Pharisees were trying to draw away disciples. 
This is the one of the most um, terrible type of false teachings because you're really pulling people away from heaven. You're saying, you know what? You can't get to heaven anyway. It was R.C. Lenski, the great Lutheran scholar, who said to add anything to Christ as being necessary for salvation, like circumcision or any human work of any kind, is to deny that Christ is really complete Savior. A bridge to heaven that is built 99 one-hundredths of Christ breaks down at the joint and ceases to be a bridge. Even if Christ be thought of carrying us as 999 miles along the way and something merely human be required for the last mile, this would leave us hanging in the air with heaven being still so far away. You're saying, hey, look, if there's something I need to add to this, then Christ really isn't in complete control of history. Something I need to do. So what happened? It says in verse 2, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along the way with some other believers to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This made the news... Made this news made all the brothers very glad. Understand the distance between Antioch and Jerusalem is like 250 miles. This was not a, a quick journey. It took them about a month. So what did they do along the way? They said, you know what, we're going to take an opportunity here and say, we're going to stop at some churches along the way and minister to them. I think that there's a point here for us as a church when there's issues in the church, whether it's doctrinal issues or leadership issues, that we take advantage. That along the way we encourage other people. And so that's what Paul and Barnabas did as they went along the way. Encouraging them. Building support. And then it says, When they came to Jerusalem in verse 4, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Understand the verse 5 and verse 1 are completely different. We have two groups of people here. Verse 1, the Judaizers said, you know what? You have to be circumcised in order to be saved. The people in verse 5, the Pharisees, however, differ because they said, you know what? The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law. So it wasn't just about how to become saved, but even what to do after you were saved. That was the issue. To them, it was, hey, you've got to keep the laws, keep the customs. That's what you do after you're saved. Thomas Jefferson said, it's always better to have no ideas than false ones, to believe nothing than to believe what is wrong. They believed something that was absolutely wrong. In the sense, they were pulling disciples away. Romans 11.6 says, if it by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. If it was based on works, it's, it's not grace anyway. Those who believe that you have to play a, a ceremony or ritual aren't really believing what Romans 3 says for when it says we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. See, the Pharisees, they were really committed to the law, weren't they? They were saying, yeah, hey, look, they were the people that followed the law religiously. And so for them to say, you know, somebody can just come in, I, you can see why they would hold so dearly to that. But understand, too, this isn't freedom to sin. Some people look at this passage and go, oh, great. No rituals, no customs, don't have to live righteously? Wonderful. I can have my cake and eat it too. That's terrific. I can go out and just sin. It's not Christian liberty to sin. That's why in 1 Corinthians it says, without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Not Christian liberty to sin. Okay, so what happens? So that's the problem. That's a big problem. So what happens? Well, the leaders come in, they have to make a decision. The decision was announced in a series of speeches by Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James. They expounded that the truth of, of this doctrine was really that God's sovereign grace 
through faith, apart from any ritual or law-keeping. Hey, if you're ever looking for something, in the, you know, when you're talking to your friends who think it's all about works, those next verses, those speeches by Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, those are critical to our faith. Critical. That's what it's all about. It's about grace. That's why Rick Warren, in talking about this passage, says, this is the big difference between Christianity and all other religions. This passage. It's the difference between works and grace. Do and done. That's what it's all about. So what do they say? Well, they present six proofs. Six proofs that salvation is solely by grace and not of works. Six things. I'm going to move through them very quickly. And then I'm going to draw some points. If you're taking notes, now's the time. The first one is salvation by grace is proven by past revelation. So past revelation proves salvation is by grace. Verse 7 says, After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them and said, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So it's Peter. Peter gets up first and says, You know what? Hey, he tells everybody, Look, God already settled this dispute a long time ago. He already decided that Gentiles can become saved despite the rituals, despite the customs. That's why Cornelius, who we talked about uh, in a few, a few uh, weeks ago, him and his whole household became saved despite any law. So Peter's saying, look, this has already been settled. Past revelation proves that. Number two, the gift of the Spirit proves that salvation is by grace alone. The gift of the Spirit. Verse 8 says, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. This is genius on Peter's part, by the way. Because if the, if the people in church said, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second. Cornelius and the family weren't, weren't saved to begin with. Peter refutes that right here. He said, oh, no, no. God knows the heart. And he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. That's why Romans 8 says, You, however, are not of the realm of the flesh, but are under the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in, in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. If anybody questioned whether or not Cornelius or anybody else who wasn't keeping the law didn't have, weren't saved, Peter says, look, they already have the Spirit. They've already been given it to them. They received the same phenomenon even at Pentecost as speaking in tongues. So the gift of the Spirit. Number three, cleansing of sin. Cleansing from sin proves that salvation is by grace. Verse 9 says, He made no distinction between us and them, for He purified their hearts by faith. The cleansing of the Gentile believers' hearts by faith alone provides evidence that salvation is by grace. He purified them. That's why Ephesians, Paul says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Since the Gentile believers were already saved, what more could works do? I always wondered about this. Because what would happen if it really was based on works? What would happen if really our works really put us on a different level? Well, there'd be a whole lot of boasting going on around here, wouldn't there? There'd be a whole lot more obvious of who's doing what. Boasting. Look at me. That's why Ephesians 2 says, By the grace of God you have been saved through faith, this not of yourself, the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can what? Boast. Look at me. Look how good I'm doing. Coming to church. I'm putting my tithe in the offering, everybody. Look at me. Do that. 
I'm coming to church. I'm here. It's not about boasting. We do it because God loves us. That's why the theologian Charles Hodge said, the doctrine of grace humbles a man without degrading him and exalts him without inflating him. That's what grace is all about. It's not about anything we've done or anything we can do. It's really about what God's already done for us. Number four, the inability of the law to save provides that, provides that salvation is by grace. The inability of the law to save proves that salvation is by grace. Look at verse 10 and 11. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor the fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Peter warns, hey, don't put God to the test here. It's not our place to really challenge God about who he can save or not. Why? Because that's really testing God. Saying, you know what, God? You, you did almost everything for us, but now we've got to do something. That's really saying, you know what, God? I, I appreciate all you've done. You don't have total and absolute control over human history. There's something that we have to put into this. It's a yoke that nobody can bear. That's why Jesus said, in speaking to the Pharisees, they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. You couldn't bear that. Because the question would be, well, how much good stuff is good? What, what, what is good? How much law-keeping, how much rituals, how much ceremony, how much things that you're supposed to do as a Christian is good enough? This is the issue been debated in churches throughout history. That's why Christianity sets it apart from any other religion. Number five, the fact of miracles proves that salvation is by grace. Unable to contradict Peter's points, verse 12 says, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done through the Gentiles, through them. The miraculous signs and wonders that, that, were, that were done by Paul and Barnabas, were, they were God's spokesmen. They taught that the miracles, hey, that grace is really, God confirmed that. Grace is really all it takes. In contrast, the Judaizers could produce no miracles to support their teaching. God does not confirm false teaching by granting miracles. So the evidence here is, is irrefutable. Fact of miracles. And this isn't your service sheet, but there's number six, which is the next verse, if you have your Bibles. Number six is the prophetic promise proves salvation is by grace. Prophetic promise. It goes on to say in verse 13, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. And then he goes on to quote Amos, who says, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. The ruins I will rebuild, I will restore. The rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. So James gets up and says, look, this has been a prophecy that it's all about grace, not about works. This is awesome because Peter really starts, starts with saying, hey, look, in the past, God already showed us. The Gentiles, Cornelius, it's not about works or law or works or ritual. And then James gets up and says, hey, look, look to the future. That was the prophecy. God already prophesied about that, that it's not about works or law or ritual. Therefore, salvation has to be by grace and grace alone. Now, you may look at this and say, well, Jared, what is the point? Whereas my professor used to always say, so what? So what? Well, I have a question for you. Who are you in the story? 
Who are you in the story? There may be people in here today, this morning, who feel like the very first group who realize, you know what, I have never put my faith and trust in Christ because I realized I, didn't, I thought there were some works I had to do. You've been trying to earn your way. And you've never asked for forgiveness of your sins. You never, you never received that grace that was freed by signing your name. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans 3.24 says, we are justified freely by His grace through redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Some of you in here this morning are in that boat. Or you're trying to earn your way and you're here because you think, well, I'm here in my church. I marked that on my list. That's a tradition. That's a custom. That's a ritual. I, I did that. I'm trying to live a good life. But you never received the free gift, of, free gift of grace. And all it takes is for you to say, you know what, God, I am a sinner. I understand that you died for me. You took my history and I took your destiny in heaven. I want to have a relationship with you. I put my faith and trust in you. And then you live righteously. Why? Because you love him. And you want to, not because you have to. The second group of people in here, this may be more of us. We're all guilty of this. Kind of like the Pharisees. The second group. Who are kind of claiming and thinking that people have to follow certain rituals or rules or laws. And so you, you, you tend to not want to share the gospel with them because you're like, mm, God's not going to save them. They are way too far gone. Or, hey, you know what? That's not fair. It's just not fair. They've been living a terrible life. They can come to Christ. I've been trying to live good. Uh, that, that's just not fair. Do we have that attitude? You know, it's very similar to the prodigal son. This is a perfect fitting for the prodigal son. If you remember the story, prodigal son, father had two sons. One squandered all the wealth, went off. He's like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to live my life the way I want it. Very immoral. Uh, ended up using all the money, uh, engaging in all kinds of bad behavior. Comes running back after all that time, lost all the money. And his dad is there, welcomes him with open arms and says, hey, let's throw a party. Going to give him a rope. Going to give him a ring. We're going to throw a, throw a party. And what's the older brother do? He gets all mad. And Luke 15 says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father said, went out and said, uh, and pleaded with him. But he answered the father and said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and you never, I never disobeyed your orders. You, you never gave me even a young goat so I can celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered all your property with prostitutes come home, you killed a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because the brother of yours is dead and alive and lost and found. Timothy Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, talks about this. Talks about these brothers. And who, you know what, they, they acted very, very differently, didn't they? Both brothers. They acted very, very differently in their attitude. But at the same time, they had the exact same heart. Because they tried to take matters in their own hand. They both, they both rebelled against their father. They both did it in their own ways and tried to take control over their own life. One did it by being very, very bad. The other did it by being very, very good and expected something more. Two different, two different perspectives. The exact same heart. They both rebelled. It was both self-centered. It was self-centered. One said, you know, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to live the way I want to live. I don't care about my father. I know that he loves me, but I'm going to live my own way. The other said, you know what? 
I'm going to try to earn my father's approval. I'm going to try to do it my own way. I've lived this life. I deserve something better. Different attitude, same heart. We can't merely double our efforts and allow follow God's rules, nor can we simply live the way we want to live. I always wondered if that other brother, that younger brother, came back filled with worry and anxiety and said, you know what, I've I got to pay back this debt. What am I going to do? It's impossible. If we are filled, according to Timothy Keller, if we are filled with worry and anxiety that he won't accept us because we have lived sinful lives like a younger brother or have not followed every moral rule like the other brother, then we in sense don't believe that God is merciful or gracious or has control over history. Which leads in the final point, which may not be as obvious. What if the younger brother of that prodigal son came back and said, you know what, I have done some bad things. I've got to earn my way back now. I've got to start doing right. I've got to pay it all back. What if he did that? He would be left with more guilt than you could ever imagine. So my third question for you is, are you in this room who like the Pharisees, who believe, who know and love the Father, but have so much guilt in your life because of so many bad things that you've done that you feel like you have to pay it back before you're ever effective for the gospel, before you can ever put the gospel in action. I remember um, talking with a guy a long time ago, a few years back, sitting him, sitting, talking with him, this, um, this person who um, really had a hard time in life. Uh, he's messed up pretty bad, did a lot of things, wrecked his marriage and his family and his job and all kinds of stuff. Been to counselor after counselor after counselor, and it's like, oh, what do I do? I'm a mess. I can't make any good decisions. I can't be effective at all for God. And I remember asking him, I said, do you know and love the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior? He said, absolutely, yes. Like the Pharisees, they already believed. I said, well, what's the problem? What do you think God thinks of you? And he wrote down, he thinks I'm a failure. I can't do anything. I said, why don't you just go to God? Why don't you just talk to him? I can't. I'm too far gone. I've got to make up for something. Why can't you go to your wife? I can't. I've got to make things right. I can't just go to her. But your kids, your finances, no. You You tell me you can't go to God? No, I can't go to God. I've got to make things right. So I've been going to church. I've been trying to live righteously. But the overwhelming sense of guilt on his life that he, he wasn't effective for anything. Some of you in here right now are thinking, man, I shouldn't be here right now. I feel like people are judging me. You feel like people are staring at the back of your head thinking, oh, look at all the bad things he's done. And you're wrong and they're wrong. Because that's what grace does. It washes over us clean. That's why I love this song, Grace Falls Down and Washes Over Me. Because it's not about your past. It's all wiped clean. It's not about earning your way back. It's about God's grace. And that's what impedes people from being effective in the gospel more than anything else I've ever seen. People that have this guilt says, you know, I'm not really good for God right now. I'm not useful for him. That's why John Piper, I love it, says the great tragedy of sin is not sin itself. The great tragedy of sin is that Satan uses the guilt of these failures to strip you of every radical dream that you ever have or ever will have. And in their place gives you a safe, secure American life of superficial pleasures until you die alone in your lakeside rocking chair. Satan doesn't need the 
your past failures, he needs the guilt of those failures. So you feel like you have to earn your way back, that you can't be effective for the gospel. And I tell you right now, you have to look yourself in the mirror no matter what you've done. You look yourself in the mirror like Paul did and you said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's how you're effective for the gospel. The, mo the most effective people I know in ministry are not the ones that have lived great lives, that have followed the right rules. It's, one of those, it's those people who said, you know what? I've lived a bad life. I've done some bad stuff. I don't have to earn my way back. God washes that clean. That's what grace is all about. And I can be effective in sharing that gospel and grace to other people. You know, as we began this sermon, we said, what is grace really all about? That's what this is. So where are you in that story? Are you effective in the gospel? Is your guilt, will you get rid of your guilt and go out and minister to others? Will you stop judging other people based on their merits or actions? And if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ because it's, you thought you had to work your way in, will you do that today? Because that's what the gospel is really all about. I leave you with this. When a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day's pay, that's a wage. When a person competes and receives a trophy for his performance, that's a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service, that is an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, can win no prize, and deserves no award, yet receives a gift anyway, that's a good picture of God's unmerited favor. And that is what grace is all about. Let's pray. God, thanks for today, Father. Thank you so much for your grace that comes down and washes us clean, Father. That's not about works. It's not about earning our way back into you, Father. Help us to be effective for the gospel, Father. Help that not to impede us, Father. Help us to not judge others as well. Help us to be able to spread that gospel to them, knowing it's as easy as going through and receiving a free gift at the end. Thanks again for today in your name. Amen.